Second Chronicles chapter number 28 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 16. We're going to read about a man by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz is the king of Judah at this time in the history of the nation of Israel. It says, At that time did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him. For again the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the low country and of the south of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh and Ajalon and Gedaroth and Shoko with the villages thereof and Timnah with the villages thereof, Gizmo also and the villages thereof, and they dwelt there. For the Lord had brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. And Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord, and out of the house of the king and of the princes, and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. And in the time of his distress did he trespass yet more against the Lord. This is that king Ahaz. For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus, which smote him. And he said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all of his ways, first and last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city, even in Jerusalem. But they brought him not into the sepulchres of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah's son reigned in his stead. Now I want you to look back at verse number 23. And we'll read this and pray. It says, For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus which smote him. And he said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this time that you've allowed us to have. Lord, I want to confess myself insufficient and incapable this morning before all of heaven and before these. Lord, unless your spirit strengthens and speaks this morning, Father, I I don't have it within me. Lord, you know the battles that we're facing. You know the struggles that we're having, the things that would weigh us down, that would keep us from living for you. And Father, we know you're aware of each and every one of these things, but we've come here this morning not to dwell on those things, but to get alone. Lord, to dwell in your shadow and to hear from you. Father, I pray that you would now push out all of the influences that would seek to creep in and steal the glory from you. And Lord, that you and you alone would be lifted up high and holy this morning. If there's any amongst us that have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray this morning that you'd make it known to them, make them aware of their need of Christ, and that they'd believe and be saved before it's everlasting too late. Lord, I love you this morning. And I've asked all these things now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As we study the testimony, the history, the personal narrative of the person of King Ahaz, I think that we could probably sum up what is to be said about him in verse number 22. It says, And in, that, in the time of his distress 
did he trespass yet more against the Lord. And this is how the Bible defines him. I'm going to cut this off, Nick. I'm going to use this one right here. This is how the Bible defines him because the Bible says that this is that King Ahaz. When God wants to point to something about the life of Ahaz that defines him, that denotes him, He says that when things got bad, Ahaz just trespassed more. And there's a phrase used in verse number 23 that I want us to zero in on and to consider for just a moment this morning because we still sort of use this phrase even in this day that we live in. It says at the end of verse 23, speaking of his idolatry, speaking of the gods of Syria, pagan gods, gods that could not help him, that could not strengthen him, it says of those gods that they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. You know, we still speak of that today. You might speak of someone that has had a financial hardship and say, boy, when they lost all that money. I mean, let me tell you something. A few years ago when the stock market crashed, there was lots of folks that was a hurting. Uh, us poor folks, it didn't affect us at all. Amen. We didn't have no money in the market. And I didn't even have enough money to go to the market. Amen let alone have it in the market, but it hurt a lot of folks. And you might look back to that time and say of such and such a person that that was the ruin of him when he experienced that financial difficulty. You might look at a marriage or you might look at a relationship and something that has happened and you look back and you point at it and you say, when that happened, that was the ruin of that relationship. Or you might look at someone that went to the bottle or went to drugs and point to a time in their life when they took that step and say that that was the ruin of that person. Well, when we look at the history of Ahaz, the inspired Word of God points to a time in his life when things began to get difficult, and a choice that Ahaz made, and it points to that choice and says, you know, at that moment, that was the ruin of Ahaz. Let me tell you something this morning. We need to take our decisions very seriously. Somebody say amen to that. There's no telling the damage, the irreparable damage that we can do when put in a crisis moment. You know, that's what a crisis is. We think of a crisis as something happening that's very bad. But a crisis, the literal definition, is when you're at a crossroads, when you're at a point of decision, when you're at a place that a direction must be taken, that is a crisis moment. And in King Ahaz's life, this moment is pointed to as the crossroads of his life, as the crisis of his life, and says he made a decision, but he made the wrong decision. We need to understand that in those moments in life, there is much weight placed upon the things that we do. We may think they're incidental. You know, we live in a society with safety nets. And, I, and I'm glad we do. I'm not critical of that. I'm glad there are things there when stuff happens. But let me tell you something. In, in this country, and this may make somebody mad, but I, I'm sorry if it does. It's not my intention, but it's the truth. So you'll just have to live with it. In this country, you don't have to starve to death. Somebody say amen to that. I understand little kids, children may not be able to take care of themselves, but there are safety nets in this country. You can go to a soup kitchen, you can go to a shelter, you can find food to eat. You could say the same thing about health care. Everybody says, uh, you know, we got all these health care problems because nobody has health care. Listen, there may be lots of folks that don't have health insurance, but there ain't nobody that don't have health care. You can walk down into the emergency room at UT or Fort Sanders, any of these places, and they are legally obligated to take you and to take care of you. Ain't that right? Somebody say amen to that. 
That's the reality of things. You don't have to go without health care in this country. And on and on we could go about various things. We have safety nets. I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's an altogether bad thing. I think sometimes somebody has to pay for it, and our government doesn't understand that. But, but I, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing that we have safety nets in this country. But we have lived in a society with safety nets. And we've lived in it for so long that we think there's always a do-over button, there's always an eraser on the pencil, and there's always a way to back up. And I think it has robbed us of the consequences and the responsibility that we bear in the decisions we make in our lives. Let me say this, our God is a God of forgiveness. And I'm glad He's a God of forgiveness. I'm an imperfect individual. Man, I sin, I mess up, and I'm glad there's a God in heaven that's willing to forgive me. But I understand this, that my life and the way I live, there are some things you just don't get back. Somebody say amen to that. Isn't that true? Listen, you squander your life away. God may forgive you, but you don't get those years back. Uh, you abuse and, and hurt your body. I mean, things may get right, and you may get right, and you may go on and live happily, but you don't, listen, you don't get to just rub them scars away. Sin has consequences, and we better let that soak in, because that's the world that we live in. Ahaz is living a life of rebellion against God. But he has a choice. Is he going to continue down rebellion and ruin? Or is he going to repent and turn and look to God for forgiveness? And God is gracious enough to do a few things to try to get Ahaz's attention. Let me tell you something. The chastisement of God is not punitive. It is grace in our lives. When God deals with us, it's not because... I'm talking about when God chastises us. When things, when God lays His hand against us, if you're a child of God, it's not because He hates you, it's because He loves you. Every, Lord, every son whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth. And God loved Ahaz, and He wanted to do something to try to get His attention. We know that from verse number 19. It says this, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For He made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. The things that were happening in Ahaz's life, they were not just happenstance or coincidence, but God had set His hand against Ahaz. He was chastening the nation of Judah, and He was chastening King Ahaz because He loved him, and He was trying to get His attention. And there was a few things things that happened. And this is just a little introduction, but I want you to notice it with me. One of the ways that God tried to get Ahaz's attention is in verse 17. Look what it says. For again, the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. Let me say that Ahaz was betrayed by his brethren. If you study the nation of the history uh, or the history of the nation of Israel, you know that the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. And there was always this uneasy uh, sort of peace between the Edomites and the Israelites. And uh, there'd be times when the, the conflict and the strife would flare up, things would sort of go bad, and they'd begin fighting one another. But they understood that through their common ancestry of Isaac, that those two bodies of people, the Israelites and the Edomites, that they were connected, they were related, they were sort of like the second cousins of the ancient world. And Ahaz, at a time when he would have hoped that he could have leaned upon the Edomites, instead the Edomites led captive away some of his people. Let me tell you something. We all get betrayed. I don't care who you are. We all, you live long enough and you love folks and you let folks love you, you're going to get betrayed, you're going to get hurt. It happens in life. But you know that oftentimes the Lord allows us to be betrayed by those that we're trusting upon so that we can realize that the Lord is the only one we can trust upon. 
Uh, you know, you remember what the Lord said about Egypt uh, to the nation of Israel, said that Egypt was like a smoking flax, and if a man leaned upon it, it would break and pierce his hand. The nation of Israel had sort of, and you, I don't know why, I don't know why they had this obsession with Egypt, but every time something went bad with the nation of Israel, they always wanted to run to Egypt to get Egypt to help them. And time and time again, they looked to Egypt instead of looking to the Lord. They looked to Egypt instead of looking to Jerusalem. They looked to Egypt instead of looking to the God of heaven to intervene in their life. And you know what God did? God said, if you're going to lean on them, if you're going to look to them, if you're going to trust them instead of me, then I'll take them out of your life and I'll make them an enemy instead of an ally. You know, sometimes when we go through those things, we have a choice of how we're going to respond. Are we going to allow ourselves to be bittered or to be bettered by what we're going through? And we get betrayed by folks, and folks hurt us, and folks do things that we don't understand, and we have a choice. We can either look at them and say, oh, I can never trust them again, or we can look at them and say, hey, I'm glad I've got a God in heaven that I can always trust and lean upon. Because even when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. And even when folks turn their back on me, even when folks hurt me, I know I've got a God in heaven that will never hurt me, but always does things for my good. The Lord allowed him to be betrayed by his brethren. Verse number 18, I won't read all of it, just the first portion. It says this, The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the low country and of the south of Judah. Not only did he experience being betrayed by his brethren, but he experienced uh, he was afflicted by his adversaries. Ahaz started to lose the fight in his kingdom. The Philistines are seen as uh, sort of the proverbial arch nemesis of the nation of Israel all through their history. I mean, anytime you see Israel trying to do something right, you see the, the Philistines trying to thwart them. It was the Philistines that sent the giant upon the battlefield that he might stand and blaspheme the name of the Jehovah God. It was the Philistine giant whom David stepped out and with five smooth stones, he had five and only took one. Amen. You know, that's a beautiful picture of the grace of God. Do you ever know that? It only took one, but there's four more in the bag if he had needed them. And he takes and he flings that stone and strikes the giant down for the Lord, guided the stone. The Philistines were always standing to antagonize, to oppress, to afflict the nation of Israel. And you know, that's how it is in our life sometimes. We have enemies. Somebody say amen to that. (laughs) Some of us can say amen more than others. Amen. (laughs) Uh, We have enemies in our lives. But let me say that no matter what enemies we may have, Uh, we have one chief enemy and adversary in our life, and that is Satan. The Bible calls him our adversary, the devil. I understand the Philistines can picture the world at times in the history of the nation of Israel, but who's the god of this world? It's Satan himself. And you know, we're in this spiritual battle, every one of us are. If you don't think you're in a spiritual battle, you say, Preacher, I'm lost today. I don't know about this church stuff. Well, that just means you're losing the spiritual battle. That doesn't mean you're not in a spiritual battle. You have an eternal soul, friend, and it will spend eternity somewhere. We can bury our heads in the sand and pretend as though there will be no consequence to our apathy and our inconsideration. But one of these days, my friend, you'll wake up in eternity and your destiny will be settled. You're in a spiritual battle too. And if you're a child of God, then you ought to be aware of the spiritual battle that you're in. And you know, sometimes it feels like we're losing that spiritual battle. I talked a little bit in Senior Saints on Friday morning. I, I, was, I don't ever preach, but I, I feel like I do more preaching there than I do over here, even though I don't ever preach. Uh, I guess I'm exhorting, Brother Bill. I guess that's what that is. I'm exhorting over there. I was talking about, you know, it feels like we're losing the battle sometimes. We look at the lives of young people. We look at the lives of, of, of couples. We look at the lives of older people uh, that are afflicted. And it feels like we're losing the battle sometimes. 
I'd remind you of this, that the battle's not reckoned by what we can see. But there are times in our life when God allows us to lose these spiritual battles that He might try to get our attention about some things. Can I give you an example? Do you remember in the book of Joshua? In the book of Joshua, the nation of Israel goes and marches against the walled city of Jericho. We hardly can't fathom, really, the fortitude of that place, the depth of the wall. It was big enough that folks lived not just on the wall, they lived in the wall. This was one of the formidable fortress cities of ancient days. And God has a plan. He tells them to go and to march around the city for seven days. And At the end of the seventh time, on the seventh day, they stop, they blow the trumpet, they shout with a loud voice. And you know the story. You sat in Sunday school. The walls, they came tumbling down and God gave them victory there. That day. But then all of a sudden, the battle is over. They're going, they're pillaging through the city, they're going through the spoils. And a man by the name of Achan, he sees some things that he wants. Now, here's the problem God had said the entire spoil of the city of Jericho doesn't belong to the nation of Israel, it belongs to me. Don't touch it, don't take it, don't borrow it, don't smell it, don't use it, just leave it right where it lays. Achan goes and he takes a wedge of silver and some gold and a Babylonian garment and he goes and he hides it. Under his tent. Now, if you've sat in Sunday school for at least a month, you've probably heard this story before. How that uh, God made known under the leader Joshua that there was sin in the camp. And how did that happen? Well, they went out against a little city by the name of Ai. Ai was so insignificant that they didn't even send their whole army. They just sent a handful of men to go out and to thwart this city. It wasn't a walled city. It didn't have a great army. Uh, it didn't have any kind of fortitude or fortifications. There was nothing about Ai that would have presented a threat to the nation of Israel. But out they go, just a handful of men to thwart this little city, to sack this little city. And uh, the hand of an almighty God was set against that army and was helping the nation, the city of Ai. And they smote the nation of Israel that day and men died because of Achan's sin you know what God did God let them lose that battle so that they could understand something was wrong in the camp you know sometimes when God lets us lose these battles when God lets us drift into discouragement when God lets us realize how bad we're hurting and what's taking place it's because he's trying to get our attention about something he allowed him to be afflicted by his adversary. But then I want you to notice, look at verse 16. It was the first verse we read. But notice what it says. It says, at that time did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him. Now, that's pretty benign. You don't really notice that. You read it and you, you think, okay, well, he sent to the Assyrian kings. But what happened in response to that? Look down at verse number 20. And Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him, but strengthened him not. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the house of the king and of the princes and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. Ahaz had looked to the great Assyrian emperor, Tiglath-Pileser. You know, I think sometimes when we read our Bible, we don't allow our mind to be colored with the, the scope, the, the magnitude of the personalities that are there. You understand that at this time, Tiglath-Pileser is literally the most powerful man in the known world. The Assyrian Empire is more broad, more far-reaching, more powerful, more influential than any other empire on the entire world. And Ahaz thinks to himself, if I can just get the Assyrians to help, help me, then maybe I can stand against these Syrian kings that are trying to afflict me. But what happened? We see he looked to his friends, but he was forsaken by his friends. You know, it hurts when people forsake us, doesn't it? It hurts when there's people. You ever had somebody that you thought, I can always depend on them, 
and you went to reach for them, and they were nowhere to be found. I've got people in my life, and, I, and they're a real friend. Uh, you ever had somebody that you know that you could call them? Listen, you'd be broke down on the road in Flagstaff, Arizona at 3 a.m. You'd call them and say, I'm, I'm broke down, I need help. And they'd say, well, let me put my pants on, I'll be there as soon as I can. You ever know anybody like that? I've had people like that in my life. People I felt I could depend on. People I could, I, I could call. I've got people in this room I feel that way about. I could call and, and at a moment's notice they'd drop everything and do everything within their, their, their possibility. Everything under the power of their influence to get to me, to help me, to do something for me. I've had people like that in my life, but then I've had some that I thought were that way. And then that phone call did come. And I did need them and I did reach for them. And all of a sudden they were nowhere to be found. You know, sometimes God's trying to get us to understand through those things that those people that we leaned on, sort of like the prodigal son that uh, went down into the far country and he had a group of friends and there's friends while the money was there. But when the money was gone, they were gone too. And there he sits in the middle of the hog slop. There he sits, uh, a, a shamed, a, a uh, rebuked, a polluted individual, and he looks for someone to help him and there's no one there. You know who he realizes? He looks towards heaven and he says, I've got a father that's waiting for me. Ahaz was... God was trying to get Ahaz's attention. But Ahaz, in the midst of this trial, you know what he does? He just trespasses more and more and more. How could he do such a thing? Have you ever just scratched your head at somebody's actions and thought, how could they do such a thing? They're wrong. They know they're wrong. They're living wrong. They're feeling the wrongness of their living. How could they go? in that direction any farther. Well, I want you to notice three things. And I, normally i got subpoints and all that stuff. This morning I want to give you three things that I believe Ahaz did that were the ruin of him. He's faced with these things. His brethren have turned on him. His adversaries are afflicting him. His friends have forsaken him. And in the midst of God's chastising hand upon his life, he has a choice that he has to make. But he does three things instead that led to his ruin. I want you to notice them with me. Look at verse number 22. The Bible says this, And in that time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord? This is that King Ahaz. Now, how did he do that? For he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus. Now, you need to understand something. Again, it's easy to kind of miss the, the geographical places that are being denoted. Damascus is not a Philistine city. Damascus is not an Edomite city. Damascus is not an Assyrian city. Damascus is a Syrian city. The Syrians were the very ones that he was at war with. And he looked at the Syrians. You know what he said? He said, I guess their God's doing more for them than my God's doing for me. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Let me say the first thing that a person does when they come into ruin is they deny the harm of their own sin. Ahaz didn't realize that the very thing that was causing this in his life was the very thing that he was pursuing with all of his greatest ability. Can I tell you something this morning? Sin is always bad. Sin always hurts. Somebody help me this morning. Sin is always bad. Sin always hurts. It's always destructive. It doesn't matter if it's a little sin. It doesn't matter if it's a big sin. It doesn't matter if it's a public sin. It doesn't matter if it's a private sin. It doesn't matter if it's one time. It doesn't matter if it's a thousand times. Sin is always destructive. It always hurts. It always wrecks. It always ruins. 
If your life is in ruin, I believe the first place I'd look is I'd check to see if there's any sin in my life. You see, what Ahaz should have done is he should have said, where have I offended God? But you know what he said? He said, where's a God that my lifestyle doesn't offend? Instead of saying, what have I done that made the God of heaven turn His hand against me? What is it in my life that God's trying to get out? What is it about me that God's trying to purge? Instead, He said, oh, it couldn't be me. It's got to be somebody else. Let me tell you something. God doesn't judge us. I want you to listen carefully. You know, you hear people say things like this. You hear them say, well, sins the Father are visited under the third and the fourth generation. You ever heard somebody say that? They don't ever quote in the Old Testament where God says, I'll no longer judge folks that way. Every man shall stand for his own sin, for his own judgment. Let me tell you something. Somebody may have done you wrong. Somebody may have forsaken you. Somebody may have betrayed you. But if your life is in pieces, I believe I'd start with me to look at as the cause of it. Listen, I didn't come here to fuss at you. I didn't come here to be mean or to be cold with you this morning. Uh, But I'm not becoming your enemy because I tell you the truth. I'm trying to love you this morning by telling you the truth, by loving you enough to be honest with you. And I'm telling you this, that when things go wrong, the first place to look is right here. Right here. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And acknowledge that the sin in our lives is a destructive thing. Whether we admit it or not, whether we acknowledge... Listen to me. You don't have to acknowledge your sin for your sin to destroy you. You don't have to acknowledge your sin for your sin to leave you in pieces and in ruin. Just living in sin is enough to do that. We live in a day where we think if we ignore something long enough, it just goes away. And that's, what, that's the way we live our lives. Uh, that's the reason. I, I'm gonna, if I offend you this morning, just stick in. Amen. Because that means it's about to get good. Somebody say amen to that. That's why we live in a day of so much debt collection. Now, listen, I know how they are, like hounds on your door. I understand. I'm not saying that I live in a perfect household or that I got some kind of... I mean, listen, I, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm Dave Ramsey's dream man. Somebody say amen to that. All right? But I'm saying this, part of the reason we have that, it, part of the reason it is epidemic in society, not just things go bad, not just something happened, not just things went wrong, but part of the reason it is epidemic in our society is because we live in a world where we think if we can just ignore that bill long enough, we can just ignore that phone call long enough, we can just put it off long enough, eventually somehow they're just going to forget about it, they're going to walk away. Let me tell you something, the reason that we do everyone else that way is because we try to do God that way. We think we sin, we do wrong, we do unrighteously, somehow we'll just forget about it, We'll go on. We'll pretend like it never happened. We'll go to church and we'll shout it out. We'll go to church and we'll sing the songs. We'll just go on and pretend like nothing happened. Let me tell you something. God doesn't work that way. Do you remember what he told Cain? He said, Cain, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. But if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. Cain, your sin isn't going anywhere, so you better deal with it. Ahaz, in the midst of his distress, he didn't look at himself. Instead, he denied the harm of his sin in his life. Where he should have said, the reason this is happening is because I've looked to the gods of Damascus. He said, because this is happening, I'm going to look to the gods of Damascus. And the more he turned to them, the more God had to chastise him. I want to be very careful with what I say right here, because I don't want to be misunderstood. God is very long-suffering. But do you understand that to live a life of sin is more harmful to you than to leave this world early? To live a life of sin is more harmful for you than to leave this world early. I think sometimes about people that I've known 
And all of a sudden, I mean, an accident happens, something, a car wreck or a medical thing, and all of a sudden they're just they're out of this world. And sometimes we have trouble piecing it together. Far be it from me to be any man's judge. And that's not what I'm trying to do. But I do understand this. The Word of God says if we judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. And I understand there are times when God delivers a man over, uh, delivers a man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved. I do believe that there are lines we can cross, boundaries we can step over where God says, you're doing nothing but hurting yourself now. And I'd rather see you present with the Lord and absent from the body than to be present in the body and absent from a walk with the Lord. Now, I don't believe God takes that lightly, but I don't believe we should either. And I think we need to understand that there are times that we can cross those lines. And I've seen people in, in times in life where you just can't help but think. You know they knew God. You know they were saved. And you know the way that they're living. And you can't help but think to yourself, maybe they crossed a line. Maybe they stepped into a place. Maybe they entered a phase in their life where God said, that's enough. I'd rather take them home with me than see them wreck their testimony and mine by living that way in this world that they're in. You see, he was going down this path, and God said, here's a stop sign, here's an obstacle, here's a yield sign, Ahaz. And Ahaz said, it couldn't be my problem. It couldn't be for me. That stop sign couldn't be for me. It's meant for someone else. That yield sign couldn't be for me. It's meant for somebody else. That roadblock couldn't be for me. It's meant for somebody else. And he continued down that path. Let me say that he denied the harm of his sin, but look at verse number 24. It says this, and Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Let me say that the first step he took that led to his ruin was he denied the harm of his sin. But the second step that he took is he denied the help of the sanctuary. Now let me tell you something. I'm glad God gives us a place where we can get things right. Somebody say amen right there. I, if you live this life and you're like me, and I guarantee you may be better than me, but you're still like me. If you're fallen, if you're sinful, if you're a human being, you're going to get wrong sometimes. You're going to do wrong sometimes. You're going to get your life out of whack with the Lord. You're going to step out of line. You're going to live in rebellion. If you're anything like me, that is going to be your experience at times in our lives. But I'm glad when those times come, we don't have to stay in that condition. We can get right, and we can do right. Now, I'm thankful that, you know, in this day, the throne of God upon earth was the mercy seat in Jerusalem. And that was where God met with people. In this day that we live in, you and I, our bodies, if we're saved, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. So I'm not trying to imply that you have to be inside of a church house to get your life right. But let me remind you that this morning you are inside of a church house. And you came here to hear some truth. You came here to hear the Word of God. You came here to hear a preacher preach. That's why you're here this morning. You came here because you know it's good for you. As we sit here this morning, can I remind you that the church is not a burden or an obligation. It's a blessing and an opportunity and a place where we can go and hear the preaching of the Word of God and be stirred by the conviction of the Spirit of God. I'm not saying God can't do some preaching outside these walls. I'm not saying God can't stir us through the Holy Ghost outside of these walls. I'm not saying that there's anything about these dry walls and these studs. And, I, and when I say studs, I ain't talking about me. I, I'm not saying you can't do that at other places, but I'm saying this. Ahab had a place where he could meet with God. And instead of running to that place, he ran away from that place. 
instead of going into the house of God and saying, here's a place where I can get my life right. I know I'm wrong. I know I've messed up. But there's a forgiving and long-suffering and gracious God in heaven. And His mercies are new every morning. And great is His faithfulness. And now I can meet with Him. And the blood can cover my sins. And I can ask forgiveness. And righteousness can be imputed unto me. If I can just get to the sanctuary, I can get some help. If I can just get to the altar place, I can get some help this morning. Instead of doing that, you know what he did? He said, I don't want that old dusty temple sitting around here anymore. It's not in step with my lifestyle. I don't ever go there anyway, so what do I need it for? And he stepped in and he pillaged God's house. You know, oftentimes, God's given the church for our, for our good and for His glory. And I, I agree that it's for His glory, but don't ever forget that it's also for our good. That God has given it. As a preacher, I need preaching. I try to listen to a steady diet of preaching because I don't ever get preached to. And my wife laughed when I said that. Uh, maybe she does a little preaching to me. But, uh, you know, I, I try to have a steady diet of preaching. You know why? Because everybody needs preaching. Everybody needs the Word of God preached to them. Everybody, everybody, everybody needs a man of God to mount a pulpit to open a holy, inspired, perfect, preserved book to read Scripture, to apply it to our lives, to stir us to movement and a commitment to God. Every one of us needs that. That's one of the things that helps us get right. But you know what Ahaz did? He said, I'm not interested in that. There was a thought that came to my mind when I saw this. I, can I share it with you? I, I, you know, you think about the house of God and, and you think about the vessels of the house of God. Now, the, the book of, uh, of 2 Timothy tells us that we are vessels in the house of God. And uh, I thought about what Ahaz did. Now, let me ask you something if you've ever met anybody that's done this. They, something gets into their life. Something upsets them. There's sin in the midst of their life. Their attitude is already slipping. And they do this. It says this, And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God. You ever heard somebody say something like this? All them church folks, they're just the same anyway. If I've been to one church, I've been to a thousand. I've been to every one of them. A bunch of hypocrites down there. They're all the same. Let me tell you something. Don't you lump me in with a lot of these nuts out here. Don't you lump me in with some of these folks out here. I know there's some crazies out there. And I'm not saying I don't get a little crazy myself sometimes. But I, around here, we're trying to do things biblically. Somebody say amen to that. The Bible is our guidebook, our manual, our instruction book. It is the compass of our life and our worship. And that is what we're seeking to do. They say, well, you know, all them church folks are just the same anyway. It says this. And he cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. You ever heard somebody do that? You ever heard somebody say, oh, sister so-and-so, why, you know, she's rude. Oh, well, you know, brother so-and-so, you know, he, he's selfish sometimes. Oh, uh, you, you know, you, you know them folks over there, you know, they, I, one time I heard that they gossiped about somebody. It's always funny to me how, how people who love to listen to gossip get real judgmental about gossip being told. You know, I found this. People that really hate gossip, they don't hear a lot of it. Let me say that again and somebody give me some help in the house of God. People that really hate gossip, they don't hear it very often. Because you know what happens when somebody comes up and says, Oh, have you heard about Sister So-and-so? You say something like this. Well, whatever it is, it, we probably ought to just pray for it instead of spreading things around. Where they say, Did you hear what the preacher said to so-and-so? And somebody come up and say, You know, listen, i got to hear that man preach. And I know he's not perfect, but but I do have to listen to him preach, and so I feel like I need to revere him, and, and I need to not have anything that the devil might use against me when I hear the preaching of the Word of God. People that hate gossip, they don't tend to hear a lot of it. 
And you have people, they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so, I heard her gossip. Get over yourself. You think you're perfect? I am bound to say this. Oh, them church people. Yeah, them church people's lost individual sinners, uh, polluted, filthy, wicked, that's been redeemed by the grace of God. And you're no different. Every one of us is the same. The only thing that makes an impact in our lives is the grace of God. That's the only reason any of us are here this morning is because of God's grace in our lives. Start to cut them things in pieces, you know. Start to cut them in pieces. Then notice what he does. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. Hmm. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He said, if that's all church is, I don't want to go. Well, if that's all you're coming for, I don't believe I'd go either. If the only reason you come is to find out what everybody's saying about you, if the only reason you come is to, uh, to present yourself and to have everybody's pat on the back, if the only reason you come is to hear this singer sing or, or that choir song sung or this type of message preach, then you're not going to stay in, how, in the house of God very long. The only folks that stick in is the folks that's coming for the Lord. Because I found this where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be. Where there's God's people willing to meet and willing to worship and willing to have their hearts right, God will show up. He'll be a part of that. You say, what do I do, preacher, if things aren't exactly like I wish they were? Go find somebody that's got a heart for God and say, if nobody else will bring God to church with them, I'll bring God to church with me. I'll get in there and worship. If nobody else will listen to the preaching, I'll listen. If nobody else will worship in the singing, I'll worship. Nobody else will climb on the altar, I'll climb on the altar. Because I'm not coming for them, I'm coming for God anyway. And if I've got to, I'll find somebody that will help me and we'll pick him up and bring him to church with us. He began to shut the house of the Lord. And then you know what he did? And this is my next point. It says this, And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. You know what he started to do? He said, I ain't got to go down there to the temple. I can just go worship God at the first Galilee community golf course. Man, I ain't got to go to church. Bunch of hypocrites down there anyway. I'll go worship God my own way. Here's the problem. There's a way that seemeth right unto a man. The ends there of the ways of death. I don't know when I don't know when it was that worship became a man centric thing. But do you understand how ludicrous and and I don't mean this in an ugly way. Do you understand how ludicrous and idiotic that the premise of seeker sensitive worship is? We need to find out how people want to worship and make our church that way. Can I remind you, my friend, that worship isn't about the people. Worship is about the God of heaven. And we better find out how He wants to be worshipped. And worship Him. We know how He wants to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. That means if it ain't true, you can't worship Him with it. That means if it ain't true, you can't worship Him with it. It means if the Spirit of God isn't present, then worship can't take place. I think we know how He wants us to worship Him. But Ahaz, he said, I'll just go down to the golf course. I'll worship. I like golf, by the way. I'm not, I'm, I'm terrible. I don't like golf. I love golf, and then I hate golf. And then I love golf, and then I hate golf. Uh, there's never a point when I just like golf. <laughs> I always either love it or I hate it. There's nothing wrong with playing golf. Uh, there's nothing wrong going down. Hey, listen, go to the lake, go fishing. That's fine. Don't do it on God's time. 
But go down and enjoy it. That's God's creation. There's nothing wrong with going down and enjoying it. Go out in the woods. Go hunting. There ain't, there ain't nothing wrong with going hunting now. I mean, I, I like hunting. I especially like it when we got some of them, uh, them Holy Ghost-filled deer hunters that bring me back some meat. I like that. There's nothing wrong with that. But understand that the deer stand isn't the church house. The lake isn't the church house. The golf course isn't the church house. If that's all that it was, God would have never called the church the church house. I just sort of think that we ought to worship God in the way that He wants to be worshipped and not reject and deny the help of the sanctuary when things are going wrong in our life. And then finally, I want you to notice verse 25, and I'm done. It says this, And in every several city of Judah he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoke to anger the Lord God of his fathers. I want you to notice that he denied the harm of his sin. He didn't acknowledge that it was himself doing this to him. He denied the help of the sanctuary, the one place he'd get help, and God could have met with him. He refused to go there. But finally, he denied the hypocrisy of his service. You see, Ahab didn't quit being religious. He just quit having a relationship with God. Ahab didn't quit going to church, quote-unquote. He just quit going to a Bible-believing church. Amen? I understand. If you want to be theological, I understand the Old Testament temple is not the same thing as the New Testament church. And, and you sound real spiritual saying that, but understand the application here. He didn't quit being religious. He just quit going to the place where the true God resided. And he began to, to burn, altar, burn incense on other altars and he made high places. And you know what happened? He grew comfortable that way. I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. When you grow comfortable with hypocrisy, there's nothing to stop you or to turn you around. When you're willing to be dishonest with yourself, with everyone else, and with God, then there's nothing at that point short of just God wrecking your life like a wrecking ball that can get your attention. When you're willing to go to church and fake it, then you're always going to have a fake relationship. When you're willing to go out and you're willing to talk a talk without walking a walk, when you're willing to be a hypocrite, and I know people say, well, everybody's a hypocrite. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, but some folks is comfortable with it. Listen, I'm a hypocrite, but I hate that about myself. I understand I'm a hypocrite. I understand there's things I preach and I want God to help me to practice. There's things that I, 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 I want to push folks towards uh, in, in loving God, in chasing God, pursuing God, grabbing hold of God that I want God to do in my life too, that I don't see it there as much as I wish I did. I know I'm a hypocrite this morning, but I hate that about myself. When a person gets to the place where they say, yeah, I know I'm a hypocrite, but this is the religion I want. I know it may not please God, but it pleases me. Then at that point, there's nothing to turn you around except God just rings your bell and lays you up. You see, that's the last step. It should have been that at some point while he was cutting up the vessels of the sanctuary, Ahaz stopped and looked at himself and said, How far have I fallen? It should have been at some point as he was cutting up the veil and getting ready to send these things. By the way, he sent them as payment to his enemies. And you know that's what happens. We sacrifice the help of the sanctuary so that we can be comfortable in the world. We think that's going to appease them, but they'll always ask for more. Let me tell you something. If they get you strung out on heroin, then the next thing they'll ask is that you be strung out on cocaine. 
Listen, if they get you laid up with beer, the next thing they'll want is they'll want you laid up with whiskey. Uh, if they have, listen, if they have you depressed, the next thing they'll want is you to kill yourself. The world never quits asking for more of us. It always wants more. But maybe in the midst of this, as he was doing this, maybe at some point he could have stopped. But you understand that the second that Ahaz stepped out of that sanctuary, he stepped out to never step back in again. I, I'll tell you this, I, I enjoy the golf course, but there ain't much there to convict a man. I enjoy the lake. I enjoy fishing. I enjoy hunting. I enjoy going and spending time in the woods. But there ain't much there to convict a man. And when you walk away from the place where the Word of God is preached and the conviction of God can soak into your soul and God's Spirit can stir you, when you walk away from that and say, I'm fine living a hypocrite, then there's not much to stop you from that point on. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says the rest of his, book, uh, the rest of his acts, and you know what it says? The first... And the last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. There wasn't much left to say about Ahaz after this point in his life. And you know what he became? He became one of them folks that you talk to. You say, you go to church anywhere? They say, well, I used to. I used to. You say, what happened? Well, somebody hurt me. Well, things just went wrong. Things went bad. Ask young people when they go to get it, and I think there's an application here, and I want you to hear it, and I promise you I'm done. I ask young people, they come to me inevitably, especially when I was a youth pastor. They'd be 14, 15, 16 years old. They'd go to get that first job. And they'd come to me, they'd say, now, now, preacher, I asked to be off every Sunday, but they're not going to let me off every Sunday. And I'd ask them this. I'd say, so are you giving up on church? And are you giving up on God? Now, that wasn't to be mean. That wasn't to pressure them but to make them understand what they were giving up for that job. Well, you understand, when you, when you make up your mind that you're going to have to have a perfect church, you understand that you're making your mind up to never go to church again. When, when you make up your mind that you're going to wear your heart on your sleeve and you're going to allow every little thing to make you angry and make you mad, you realize that you've made your mind up to never be in church again. Because every church you go to, there'll be folks that hurt you. Every church you go to, there'll be imperfect people. Every place that you go where you find people, you find problems. And when you make that decision, you say, all right, I'm getting out. You understand there's not much to ever get you back in. Like Eutychus in the book of Acts, he fell out of the house of God. (laughs) But I've never known anybody that fell into the house of God. So be careful about falling out. With their heads bowed, with their eyes closed, as a musician comes to the piano, the altar's open this morning. I don't know what God may have stirred your heart about, but I know that there's help this morning in the sanctuary. I know this is a place where God's willing to meet with you. I know there's an altar here where God's waiting on you. And if you'll come to Him, He'll deal with you. He'll, he'll speak to your heart. He'll make things right. We sang about it in the choir. Even in the midst of the valley, God can make things right. Even when everything's wrong, God can make them right. Even when we've messed up, God will forgive us if we're willing to come to Him. If we're willing to come to Him. God won't force a relationship on anybody. But if we'll come unto Him. He said, any that come unto me, I will in no wise cast out.